0: Good morning. We're going to be continuing in First Thessalonians today. Uh, I'll read our text and then we'll get into it. This from starting from verse 13. It's in your bulletins as well. Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Don't forget, you're going to die. With this phrase, one of my theology professors, Michael Allen, begins one of his chapel sermons entitled, Theological Education as Learning to Die. Addressed to young seminarians, his message was nevertheless one that we all need to hear in all times and in all places, because death is the universal problem of the human condition. In some ways, death is particularly removed from us living in the 21st century. You see, in just over 100 years, from 1900 onwards, the average human lifespan in wealthy nations nearly doubled from around 40 years old to the mid-70s. Consider that the vast majority of people throughout history wouldn't have blinked an eye if their siblings or mothers died in childbirth. Uh, if their childhood friends died of disease or starvation. Indeed, if they themselves met an untimely end at the the hands of plague or sword. But today in America, death is more detached from us. It's more of a theoretical concept, something that we can safely ignore in our day-to-day existence. Uh, The theologian Ephraim Radner writes this, Our complacent expectation of life's longer duration breaks the body's bridge to eternity. We know that we will die, but our awareness of longevity shifts it from a present reality to a distant horizon. We push death to the margins. It comes at the end. Life's duration becomes something we imagine to be valuable for its own sake. Yet no matter how long one's life is, we still inevitably come face to face with death each one of us. Indeed, the last two years have pressed home the intractability of death and the limits of medicine, closer to home for many of us who have felt the ravages of the pandemic. Todd Billings, in his book, The End of the Christian Life, which I'll be um, quoting from now, but I'll just say as an aside, I'll be drawing a lot from this book throughout this sermon, and I commend it to you. It's a, a reflection on on death, and how the Christian faces death. Uh, he says this that about modern medicine, that although it is a gift from God, we abuse it and cling to it as a cloak to shield us from the daily reality that we are all dying. We fail to acknowledge that even the best medical treatment has no solution for the diagnosis of death. Instead of receiving medical care as a gracious gift from the Lord, we look to it as a golden calf a self-made God that can become our tyrannical master. Yet, there is a true God who offers resurrection life. His name is Jesus Christ. And as Hebrews 2.15 puts it, He died and rose again to free those who from all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Brothers and sisters, my goal this morning is to proclaim to you this freedom from the fear of death that we have in Christ. I know that many of you have dealt with death at a much more intimate and painful level than me. I don't want you to think that this is something that I've got all figured out. Rather, I will hope to call your attention to how the Word of God speaks to both you and me about death. Our text today shows that we are not the first people to struggle with how to react, how to feel, how to contend with death. Yet God's Word gives life in the face of death. Before we uh, really get into it, I do want to acknowledge up front that this is one of the more difficult texts in the Bible to understand. And I'll be offering my um, best understanding of it, knowing that there are Bible believing Christians that disagree. So. Uh, I do, however, think that the main points of this text are clear, even if the details aren't quite clear. And that, this is the main takeaway that I want you guys to really have. Because of Christ's resurrection, we may have confidence that we will rise with Him in order to be with Him forever. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have, may have confidence that we will rise with Him in order to be with Him forever. We'll unpack this in three ways, three points. First, we grieve death with hope in Christ. Second, our hope in Christ is real. It's not wishful thinking. And third, in light of this, we ought to encourage each other with our hope in Christ. So first, we grieve death with hope in Christ. The Apostle Paul addresses a concern that the Thessalonians had about those among them that had died. What happened to them? Were they lost forever? How did the resurrection of Jesus apply to them? We read in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Referring to the dead as sleepers was a euphemism that was common to the ancient Greco Roman world, which I think Paul uses in a slightly different way, and we'll, we'll unpack that later. But right now, I want you to focus your attention on the second half of the verse, um, which explains Paul's purpose in, in writing this portion of his letter. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul wants the Thessalonians to be different than the people around them in facing death. And notice how carefully he writes. He doesn't forbid the Thessalonians from grieving at all. He doesn't say grieving itself is an evil. He doesn't say don't grieve. But he also doesn't sanction them to grieve in a despairing way, to grieve without hope in the way that the ancient pagans did. You see, there are two basic mistakes that we can make with regard to death. First, we can pretend that it doesn't exist that it's not relevant, that it doesn't involve real loss, that it doesn't doesn't create wounds in us that don't fade away. Modernity, as I stated before, has banished death to the margin, so it doesn't even bear thinking about today. Our meat in the supermarket comes in neat plastic packages, drained of blood, totally disconnected from the life of the animal it came from. Our TV shows and magazines glamorize young and beautiful bodies, presenting them as attainable by anyone as long as you put in the right healthy habits. Consider the common practice now of having celebrations of life for the dead instead of memorial services or funerals. We're not going to focus on what happened. We're going to pretend it didn't happen. We're going to focus on the positive as if that could magically wish it all away. Another way that we avoid death is we rationalize it. As the song in The Lion King teaches, death is just part of the circle of life. It's natural to die, and we ought to accept our death as the way in which we return to nature. In recent years, there's been a trend towards environmentally conscious burial options, where you no longer have a casket, you just get buried in the ground and you become plant food. In fact, you can even buy what's called a mushroom suit, basically burial clothes embedded with mushroom spores that will accelerate the decay and cleanse the environment of the toxins that still reside within the body. So this, it's a peaceful transition, becoming one with nature. That's what the world is teaching us, but what does the Bible say? It flies in the face of what the Bible teaches about death. You see, God didn't create the world and its creatures, intending them to die. Death is the result of sin, of broken communion with the living God, who alone is the source of infinite, everlasting life. Like plants cut off from their roots, we all wither and die, cut off from God by sin. In the Old Testament, death is always seen as something that pollutes. People were disqualified from the worship of God if they touched a dead body. They had to be cleansed in order to return to worship. Augustine writes this about death. The death of the body was not inflicted on us by the law of our own nature, since God did not create any death for man in His nature, but it was imposed as a just punishment for sin. See what Augustine is saying here, that death is an alien intrusion into God's creation. There is nothing more unnatural than death. Friends, for the Christian, death isn't something to be made at peace with. It's an enemy, something that has no place in God's design. But if the first mistake in regard to death is ignoring it, the second mistake we can make is to despair at it. There's an important qualifier that I need to add here. That is to say, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and if you don't believe that there is an afterlife, then you don't have any reason for hope. Like many of you, I've been working from home for the better part of two years now. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I work at Pratt & Whitney is my full-time job, and uh, the situation has left me feeling pretty disconnected from my coworkers. I haven't seen most of them in a couple of years, in person at least. Nevertheless, the company does still try to maintain morale virtually, and recently I got an email from a manager that I work with that an employee's husband had died in a skiing accident. He asked those interested employees or concerned employees to contribute towards a GoFundMe for this employee for the funeral expenses. And he also asked what I think is very typical, that we send our thoughts and prayers her way. And as I read the email, I thought to myself, thoughts about what? Prayers to whom? Our positive thinking is not going to reverse this tragedy. Prayer that is not directed to the transcendent God who creates and sustains everything accomplishes nothing. The ancient Greeks who did not have a positive view of the afterlife were more honest in reckoning with the hopelessness of death. One letter from the second century BC to a grieving couple who had lost a son sounds like this. I sorrowed And wept over your dear departed one as I wept over Didymas. The person writing the letter had also lost a son. But really, the letter continues, there is nothing one can do in the face of such things. So please comfort each other. And that's it. The author confirms that none of us can do anything in the face of death. And comforting each other in the face of this is cold comfort, no comfort at all. Friend, if you're here today, if you're watching online, and you haven't put your faith in the resurrected Christ, you do have a reason to fear death. Put your faith into one who has conquered death and be freed from your fear. But brothers and sisters, if you, like the Thessalonians, believe in Christ, you, you grieve at the tragic horror of death, but you have reason for hope. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf and Frodo prepare to depart forevermore into the West to be separated from their friends, Gandalf sees that Sam, Mary, and Pippin are holding back tears, and Gandalf says to them, I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are evil. Brothers and sisters, grieve with hope. Grieve knowing that death does not have the final word. The Christian hope is based upon the reality that a man died and came back to life, never to die again. The way that we reckon with death is one of the essential distinguishing things between us and the world. In fact, it becomes a key way that we can witness to the world, as the Apostle Peter puts it, to always have a reason for the hope that is within us. Consider the connection between verse 12 and verse 13. In verse 12, uh, we read that uh, Paul says, you know, I want you to live quietly, mind your own affairs, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Uh, We have these Bible headings that help us to get our, um, organize the Bible and find things, and they're helpful, but at times they obscure the connection that this is one interrupted thought. And One way that we walk before outsiders in a worthy manner is in the way that we confront and deal with death. And Paul is saying that we must have a hope that death is not final and that in this way we witness to the world about the hope of Christ. This brings me to my second point, that our hope in Christ is real and not wishful thinking. The Apostle Paul explains in verse 14 why the Thessalonians ought to have hope concerning dear brothers and sisters that have died. The Thessalonians uh, misunderstanding may have been, was rooted in how the resurrection of Christ applied to the already dead. Keep in mind that 1 Thessalonians is actually the earliest letter written in the New Testament. It's written before the Gospels, before Revelation, um, and it is written only 20 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so, people are still trying to reckon with and understand what the impact of the resurrection was, how to interpret it, what it meant for them. At this point in history, it's understandable that there's confusion about how to, how to interpret the resurrection. Similar to how the Old Testament prophets foretold a coming day of the Lord, wherein God would accomplish His salvation and judgment in one cataclysmic event, So the Thessalonians expected that the resurrection would also happen all at once. And we see that, you know, from redemptive history, that some of the prophecies of the prophets of the Old Testament were fulfilled at the coming of Christ. But others still remain future, unfulfilled. And now we can see that the day of the Lord can be conceived as as two days separated by Connected to the age in which we now live. Theologians call this the already and the not yet. That Jesus has brought the kingdom of God, and yet it is not fully inaugurated yet. With this in mind, we can consider the Thessalonians' question. When Jesus was resurrected, yet the dead still remained in the grave, the Thessalonians wondered if the dead had missed their one and only chance for eternal life. If they had missed the bus. And what does Paul say in response? He says in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, The Greek word that is translated since here can also be translated if, which I think is a better fit for what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is building a logical syllogism. He's saying if A is true, then B must be true as well. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we will rise with him again. It's as good as done. Our hope in the resurrection is founded upon the historical record of the Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, who really lived, died, and rose again with eyewitness testimony to confirm. In fact, Paul himself testifies here that he received this teaching about the resurrection from Jesus himself. He says that I received, we declared to you by a word from the Lord, from Jesus. In the gospel, we behold both the earthy human Jesus who experienced all of the ugliness of the human condition, including death, and the transcendent Lord of the universe, the great I Am, who sustains, who creates and sustains all things. Consider Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, grappling with the prospect of a brutal death, bearing upon himself the weight of the wrath of God for the sake of his people. In Matthew twenty-six twenty-eight, Jesus says of himself, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Yet out of obedience to His Father and love for His people and the promise that He would be vindicated, He set out on that awful road to Calvary. And on the other side of the cross, having triumphed and raised to the right hand of the Father, He speaks again in Revelation 1.17. He says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, this is the Jesus in whom you have placed your trust. He is alive. And he has not only conquered death, he controls it now. Having subjugated it, it now serves his purposes This is the one that is able to deliver you and I from our slavery to fear of death. In Christ, death is merely a portal to resurrection life. The communion with God that we were created for. Even now we share in Christ's victory, even though it has not been fully consummated yet. Romans 6, 10, and 11 says this, that the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. There is no surer place to be than under the protective shadow of Jesus. This is why Paul is able to say in verse 15 that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Death cannot separate us from the resurrection power of Jesus. It merely becomes an opportunity for a showcase of His glory. Contrary to the fear that the dead had missed their chance, Paul says that in fact, they will be the first to rise. This fits into the pattern of Jesus' words, that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Long-forgotten saints who died in obscurity or tragedy, will be the first to share in the resurrection. They may have been forgotten by the living, but never by God. Yet if Paul cleared things up for the Thessalonians, it seems he has added confusion for us today. First um, confusion that I want to address is this notion of what some people call soul sleep. Uh, This notion of what the intermediate state, the state that where the dead reside now, before the resurrection, go to. And according to this view, when in in death the soul is separated from the body, it goes into this sort of hibernation until the final resurrection. And proponents will point to Paul's usage of sleep here as a metaphor for death in this passage as a data point in their favor. I'm not going to dive too deep into this because I think the Westminster Confession questions that we confessed today do a great job of summarizing what Scripture teaches. But briefly, I think Paul may have been using sleep as a metaphor to highlight the temporary nature of bodily death. Like sleep, being separated from our bodies has a time limit. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that consciousness does not end at death. To give A few biblical examples. Jesus said to the thief on the cross that when he died, he would immediately be with him in paradise. Likewise, Paul states that it is better to die and be with Christ. He doesn't say it's better to die and go to sleep. In both cases, it seems that for believers, there is an expectation of continued consciousness and relationship with God in the intermediate state. However, for unbelievers, the Bible teaches that judgment begins immediately. As well, for example, see Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. In both cases, everybody will be released on the last day. Some to everlasting life, and others to eternal punishment. Okay, so maybe none of this crossed your mind when you were reading this passage, and you're wondering and said, "What is going on in verses 16 and 17?" Let's try to. Unpack that. Uh, the scripture says here, the, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Paul's description here kind of reminds me of that scene in uh, Avengers Endgame when all of our heroes are... are Snapped back to life and uh, brought back just in time to fight Thanos. It's this big, flashy, loud, epic scene with lots of CGI. And whenever we come to these sorts of really vivid imagery in Scripture, it's it's hard to interpret, hard to make sense of what it all could mean. And as I said, this is an area where Christians disagreed, had, are disagreeing now, and frankly, are free to disagree. I want to say that. Some Christian traditions, particularly a a tradition called dispensationalism, have taken this passage as evidence for a particular view of the end times that includes an event called the rapture. If you're familiar familiar with the Left Behind series of books, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, And if not, basically, it's this notion that one day, all the Christians of the world will suddenly be translated away to heaven, just zapped away, uh, no matter what they're doing at the time. So, you know, you've got uh, cars just crashing and planes falling out of the sky because their drivers and pilots got taken up in heaven with Jesus. And uh, those folks would see this passage and, and point to it as evidence for the rapture. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. Keep in mind that the Bible uses accommodated language. It teaches us concepts in ways that we can understand it, using our own historical context uh, as sources, using what we understand already to communicate things to us that we don't understand yet. In this case, the original hearers of this letter lived in a world where this kind of pageantry would have been a common sight, albeit in a much less spectacular form. Consider the scene in Gladiator when the emperor returns to Rome after um, fighting in the field. There's this grand procession through the streets. The emperor and his sister are riding in a chariot as flower petals are rained down on them and crowds are cheering their names. And this is actually what happened in the ancient world. Military rulers, after having conquered their enemies, returned to their homeland, celebrated By their people, and we have a form of this today. When a sports team wins a championship, they have a parade through the hometown, uh, where the crowds throng about them and cheer them on and share in their glory. So it is with Jesus in this passage. The church is lifted up into the clouds to welcome Christ. Just as the crowds would have been mobbing the returning heroes, even outside of the city gates. The trumpet and the cry of command are symbols of royal prerogative, heralding the return of the conquering king. Furthermore, there's a parallel to a small detail in Acts 1-9, which we read earlier in our worship service. The account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. You notice he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. See, just as Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection by a cloud, so the church will share in his same vindication by appearing with him in the clouds. Two commentators write of this scene, The picture is that of the Lord coming to earth as the cloud-riding warrior. Like those who welcome the arrival of a deliverer to a city held under siege, the saints are taken up, not to depart to heaven, but to meet him and escort him on his victorious march to earth. So, I think that's what's going on here. But, again, let's keep in mind the main point that Paul's trying to make. He's trying to give comfort and encouragement to the Thessalonians. And that's what uh, he says. Look, Look at the end of verse 17. And so, we will always be with the Lord." That is the main point of this passage. In fact, that is the main point of the entire Bible. That we will be united with Jesus, that in Him God has come to dwell with His people in perfect, uninterrupted communion that lasts forever. The great formula of covenant theology will be accomplished. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the sweet comfort that we have as Christians that one day we will behold Jesus face to face even though we see through a mirror dimly right now one day faith will become sight and hope will be fulfilled and the covenant love that God has for us will be all that remains come quickly Lord Jesus and this brings me to my third and final point that we ought to encourage each other with our hope in Christ See, the Bible never presents eschatology, which is the study of the end, the last days, which is what this passage is about. The Bible never presents eschatology as a a theological concept only for eggheads with degrees to ponder. No, it's always meant to equip the people of God for their life here and now. Some of you may have heard the phrase that to be too heavenly minded is to be of no earthly good, that to be so focused on getting out of this evil world of all of its tragedy and horror is just escapism that enables us to avoid our obligation to love our neighbor. But that just doesn't jive with the Bible's teaching. Look at verse 18. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The theologian John Frame says that doing theology requires applying theology. You can't just study theology, you have to do it, or otherwise you're not doing theology. Our heavenly mindedness is to be put to earthly ends. We must take these deep things of God and make use of them in our pilgrimage towards heaven. We ought to be amongst the hurting, the suffering, the dying to encourage them with the hope of the gospel. We need to be by hospital bedsides, homeless shelters, trauma centers, crisis pregnancy clinics, the places in our lives where we can clearly see the messiness and ugliness of sin and death. We need to be there to offer encouragement and hope. We need to remind each other, we need to remind ourselves of the hope of the resurrection. Because whether we're eight or or 80, we are all stricken by the curse of death. The ancient church spoke of Ars Moriendi, the art of dying well, an art that seems lost today in a culture that avoids death at all costs, that sends its dying people to nursing homes and hospitals where they are out of sight and out of mind. Quoting Ephraim Radner again, he writes this, that to die well is to locate what is good somewhere outside of our control in the God who gives and receives our lives. It is to allow that alien goodness, the goodness of God's transcendent superintendence over life and its temporal duration to inform the very meaning of our vulnerability to illness, suffering, and death. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you by helping to locate where God is in your suffering. To the medical professionals among you, you have an opportunity to minister to your patients, not only physically, but spiritually. When there's no more medical intervention that will offer hope, you can offer them the hope of the gospel. Consider that awesome opportunity you have. To those who have lost unborn children, Know that far from being forgotten by the Lord, they are in His care. And in Christ, you will be united to them. To those grappling with disability and chronic illness, know that in Christ, you will be granted a resurrection body, perfect and unblemished, no longer subject to the curse of death. To those diagnosed with a terminal condition, know that in Christ, Jesus has now turned death from a foe to be feared into a gateway to eternal life with him. To those who are caring for aging parents who see age and disease rob them of the dignity that you've always seen them with, know that in Christ, this will be banished forevermore. To those looking backwards at their lives with regret for what could have been, know that Christ can restore to you the years the locusts have eaten In an eternity spent with him where regret is no more. To conclude, I'd like to share a snippet from a book that my wife and I Recently read through for our kids, an adaptation of Pilgrim's Progress, the children's, the Christian classic by John Bunyan. For those of you that haven't read it, it's an allegorical story about the Christian life that begins in the city of destruction and ends in a celestial city. To get to the celestial city, Christian and his friends, the protagonists of the story, they need to cross the dark river the
1: metaphorical representation of death. We pick up the story where, with the, last <clears throat> where the last character in the book, Stanfast,
0: is preparing to cross the river. And this is from the story. So Stanfast prepared for his last journey.
1: The floods had gone down before this time, and the water was still in calm. When Stanfast reached the middle of the river, He turned and spoke once more to his friends. This river makes so many creatures afraid, he said. Indeed, I was frightened myself before I entered it. But my fear is gone. I can feel the firm ground under my feet. And soon I shall be with my good prince. It has been pleasant to hear of him and think of him. But now I shall see him with my own eyes. He has helped me and strengthened me in all my pilgrimage. And he is with me now. Then the other pilgrims saw that. As he turned again toward the city, a beautiful light fell upon his face. And in the clear air, they could see quite across the river, and we were able to watch the multitude of shining ones who came down to receive the faithful lad and lead him into the presence of the king. Feel that. Do you feel the presence of the king with you? You no longer have to fear, brothers and sisters.